Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of 1 Corinthians. Amen. Well, good morning. As you have likely picked up on, my voice is not entirely there this morning. These uh, allergies are doing a number on me. No amens on that? Okay, there we go. Made me feel a little better this morning. Yeah, this pollen's kind of kicking my butt. Um, so bear with me this morning. We're going to have been praying. Other folks have been praying that the, it would last but I know I gotta, I gotta stay calm this morning. I gotta just be chill. Can't yell or anything today. Right? It's gonna go out. So, um, well, here we go. It's so good to be with you guys this morning. I pray you're doing well. Um, I always am excited for our gatherings on Sundays. It's good for us to be together. Amen. And uh, this morning we're gonna pick up our study again in First Corinthians. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, that's where we'll pick up today. If you didn't listen to the message from last Sunday, I would encourage you to go back and do so. Um, please make a point to do that if you missed the service. Um, the reason being is, is that it's a message that emphasizes the truth of the gospel and the significance of God's grace. And that's important for us to have just a regular input of those reminders. Because it's so easy to fall back into the thought that you know, we need to earn it, we need to work for it. It's easy for the awareness of our sin to allow the enemy to condemn us in that. Um, especially as we consider the first six chapters of Corinthians, there's a lot of things there that can certainly be convicting, as they should be. But conviction's a good thing. Conviction, when... When it's truly conviction, it causes you to run to the Lord. Condemnation causes you to run away. And so when it's conviction, it's a good thing that it, it, it stirs us, and then we run to Jesus knowing who He is. And so last Sunday's message was intended to be that reminder of, of who He is and the fact that in the awareness of our sin and our struggles, we can run to Him and that we have what we need in Him. And last Sunday also served to sort of uh, capture, if you will, a summary of the first six chapters because as we get in here to chapter 7, we're really now entering the second section of 1 Corinthians. The first six chapters dealt with Paul's concerns for the church there, uh, specific behaviors that Paul was confronting. And while certainly he's going to continue to deal with their behavior throughout the letter, Paul's now going to begin responding specifically to questions that they had asked of him. The implication is that the Corinthian church had written to Paul already. There's likely other letters, or maybe even just one, if not more, that Paul had already sent to the Corinthian church. There's been a correspondence. And so in the most recent letter that Paul had received, there were some specific questions from the church. What do we do about these things? And so now Paul's going to start to answer the questions that they had. And so from this point forward, Paul's going to be answering those questions. In chapter 7, he deals with the topic of marriage. That's where we'll, we'll embark on that today. In chapters 8 through 10, Paul's going to deal with the issue of Christian liberty. In chapter 11, he's going to deal with the conduct of the church. In 12 through 14, he's going to deal with spiritual gifts. Chapter 15, the resurrection of the dead. 
And then finally, in chapter 16, he's going to deal with giving and offerings. And so we're going to get some very practical wisdom and insight from Paul through the remainder of this letter. And so then we're going to jump in here this morning with the first part of chapter 7. The whole of chapter 7 is really geared towards this, this relationship that is marriage. And we're going to cover today verses 1 through 16. We won't get through the whole chapter. And what I would encourage you with this morning before we jump into this is that while we're dealing today with the topic of marriage, I recognize that there's a variety of you gathered here. There are different phases in life. Some of you may be sitting here married today and thinking, okay, you know, I need to hear about some of these things. And others, you're not married yet. You're thinking maybe someday I will be married. And, and maybe there's some of you here that have a divorce as a part of your past or you're a widow or, you know, we're all in different phases of life. And, and so certainly as we consider these things today and then next Sunday as well, we're going to get, again, some practical wisdom, insight into the relationship that is marriage. But I would encourage everyone here that there is something bigger beyond what Paul is addressing. Certainly, he's dealing with some very specific topics, but there's more. And what we'll consider towards the end of the message today is that this relationship that is marriage, as many of you know, is a picture of something much greater, something much bigger. So I'd encourage you today, as well as we work our way through this, to be thinking in terms of this relationship that Paul is delving into is about something much more supernatural, and that is the relationship between Christ and his church. And so that's my goal today, is that we would, yes, look at some of the specifics, but then take a step back and look at the bigger picture and see what God intends in this relationship as far as pointing people to him. And so <clears throat> let's go ahead and just read the first, um, let's go ahead and read the first four verses together as we begin. Paul writes, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If you would just agree with me in prayer once more. Fathers, we looked at your word here this morning. We recognize we're considering some sensitive topics. And Lord, we're also dealing with some very specific topics as far as Paul responding to questions from people in the church. But Lord, I pray by your spirit this morning, you'd give us only eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, these specifics and how they apply to our lives, maybe even in a daily way. But Lord, that you would help us to see the bigger picture here and the wonderful thing that is marriage and this relationship that you've designed, Lord, not only for our benefit, but Lord, to give us insight and in, in, in a, a picture of our relationship with you. So Lord, help us to see these things here this morning and to be encouraged by them and to receive them and allow you to, to speak to us, Lord, and encourage us here today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor John Ortberg he writes uh, the following in his book, Love Beyond Reason. He says, not too long ago, there was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company who pulled into a service station to get gas. He went inside to pay, and when he came out, he noticed his wife engaged in a deep discussion with the service station attendant. Turned out that she knew him. In fact, back in high school, before she met her eventual husband, she used to date this man. The CEO got in the car, and the two drove in silence. He was feeling pretty good about himself. When he finally spoke, I bet I know what you were thinking. I bet you were thinking, you're glad you married me, a Fortune 500 CEO, and not him, a service station attendant. His wife replied, no. I was thinking if I'd married him, he'd be a Fortune 500 CEO. 
and you'd be a service station attendant. It's an easy thing to overestimate our contribution to a relationship. Doing so, though, only perpetuates the self-centeredness that often marks marriage. And it denies the oneness that is truly intended in biblical relationships. Here in the first part of chapter 7, Paul focuses on answering some specific questions that the Corinthians had about marriage. And the theme of this question in Paul's response is sexual intimacy. But the greater picture that we are to see in all of this is the importance of selfless service and radical commitment. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write those two things down. Selfless service and radical commitment. This is what God desires to see in the marriage relationship. As we've read already, verse 1 and 2 again, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. And so the first matter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul about, or at least what he chose to respond to first, was the matter of marriage and intimacy. Why did they write to Paul about this? Well, we know that there were numerous issues in Corinth related to sexual intimacy. In this letter, Paul has already been dealing with prostitution, incestual relationships. He has just told them in the previous chapter to flee sexual immorality. So we know that these things were on their minds. But there was also a cultural influence in Corinth that was really creating some tension in this area. Two extremes existed in the Corinthian culture, not entirely unlike our own. There was the hedonistic view, and this would be the one that more characterizes much of our culture today. And this view basically said, anything goes. The belief was that there's no way for us to achieve sinless perfection or purity in this life, so why even try? We might as well just act on what's viewed as animalistic instincts and do what we want. This view fueled, in many cases, even the continued participation in temple prostitution on the part of many in the church. It was this view that said, it's okay. There's nothing we can really do with these bodies anyhow. They're not going to get any better, so let's just engage in what feels good, what we want. On the other end was a sort of Gnostic philosophy that pushed this ascetic lifestyle that was really about rejecting all types of intimacy, even the biblical intimacy and that of a husband and a wife. And in some respects, this was a reaction to the hedonistic culture, but it was an overreaction. As they began denying every desire of the flesh, even a God-given desire that is good and by design. So then they write to Paul to say, well, what's the right thing here? What's the right approach for us to take? Paul replies and essentially says, If you're one who seems content to not marry and refrain from such relationships, including the sexual aspects of it, then that's good. And we'll consider this more in a moment, those who are gifted or called in such a way. But then Paul also says, but if you want to marry, well, then that's also good. 
So Paul, in responding to them initially, says, either one can be good. just depends on what God or how God has created you. Because, Paul says, most people aren't in such a place where they can handle being celibate and they would benefit from being in a, mono- in a monogamous biblical marriage between a husband and a wife. And that, of course, is a key distinction. Our culture today says you have sexual desires, so fulfill them however you would like. The Bible says sexual desire is normal and even good. And fulfill it, though, in the relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, according to God's design. So from here, then, Paul says, look, either one of these can be a good thing. But from here, as he goes into verses 3 and following, he begins to then describe in part what that relationship should look like. He says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Saying then, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, folks love verses 3 and 4, don't they? Some to, some to serve their own desires. There's many who would love to just quote the first half of verse 4 and say, Amen. Right? The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Let's close. I've seen something quite similar to this before, where people pick and choose from Scripture to suit their own needs and desires. But of course, we know there's more to this passage. Then there's others who look at this and say, see, this is the type of thing that, that Christianity fosters. It's, in their minds, an abusive relationship. How can we possibly say that our bodies are not our own? That they belong to another They're offended by this. But if we really consider what Paul is communicating here, what we begin to identify, what we see is a beautiful relationship. The mutual laying down of self that must occur in marriage. And and this helps to then fuel that bigger picture goal that I've alluded to already in that relationship between Christ and his church. Now, of course, the context as we see here is sexual intimacy, but the goal... The goal is selflessness and oneness, a giving of oneself to the other. And Jesus, who was quoting Genesis 2, says in Mark, pardon me, <clears throat> quoting from Genesis 2, says in Mark 10, 6 through 9, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Two weeks ago, we considered this very passage, once again, within the context of marriage. And the idea that sexual immorality and giving yourself to another creates or even uh, fosters some sort of, of uh, destructive act because it's, it's tearing something apart. When, when a husband and wife come together and are made one biblically, it's, it's a fusion, it's a melding together. We've discussed at length the idea of identity in our study of 1 Corinthians. And 
I believe that what we're to see here in marriage, and some people don't like this. For some, it does. It sort of offends your senses. But in marriage, there is to be a fusion of identities. We're to let go of our autonomy and recognize that we are no longer our own. People always laugh at how the longer a couple is together, the more they seem to look alike and dress alike. You ever noticed that before? I aspire someday to be wearing that matching sweatsuit with my wife. (laughs) I think it's a wonderful thing. Two lives that have really just sort of grown so together. Tastes and interests have aligned so much. And again, some people look at this and they think, boy, that that, that freaks me out. I don't want to give up who I am. And I think when we look at it that way, we're looking at it not through the lens that God intended, but rather to say, no, look, this marriage is to be something that it, it, it so blends that it becomes a beautiful picture of what God desires, what Jesus desires of those who call him Lord. We are, in fact, about being made more and more into his image, are we not? To resemble him, to talk like him, to be people who, when others interact with you, they would say, man, there's somebody who has spent time with Jesus. You see, when we think about marriage, we must remember that all aspects of marriage from a biblical perspective are intended to replicate and to point to that greater relationship. So as Paul continues to deal then with sexual intimacy, certainly you can focus in on what he has to say about that. And know this, that you know, in time, you know, maybe we would do a, a special marriage conference and rest assured, I'd take 1 Corinthians 7 and I might teach it a little differently than I do this morning. Because there is much to learn about some of the more practical components of marriage in this chapter. But what I want us, all of us, to understand here this morning is that the intimacy here that Paul is addressing within the Corinthian church also intends to be a picture of this oneness that God desires. And so Paul writes in verse 5, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It should not be lost on anyone today that sexual desire consistently gets men and women into trouble. So much of our culture even feeds these desires, profits off of these desires. Desire itself is not wrong. How we satisfy such desire, or whether we seek to deny it altogether, is where the problem comes in and where Satan can attack and often does. The marriage relationship is designed in part to provide a safe and healthy environment for satisfying of desire. But what we often miss is that such a relationship then can lead to a stronger walk with the Lord. As Paul is bringing in the influence of Satan here, what he's pointing out to us is that this oneness This selflessness in marriage, the fulfilling of desire, contributes to self-control and ultimately to holiness. He's, again, taking this relationship and making it much bigger, saying the sexual intimacy within a marriage is intended to contribute to holiness, to a stronger relationship with God. 
Stephen Um writes, ultimately, selfless service in a marriage relationship is intended to spur both partners on in their devotion to the Lord. The greater end of intimacy in a marital relationship is to live a life pleasing to God. It's interesting, many times we don't look at it this way because we're so consistently looking at these things through the lens of our flesh and through our own desires, not necessarily through, God, how have you designed this and what have you designed this for? God calls us to be sanctifying agents in our spouse's life. For the married couples, you serve as a sanctifying agent in your spouse's life. When lived out well, we can be a means of our partner's holiness, which is really a cool thing. And begins then to really touch on the greater ethic of this God-designed relationship. In verse 6, Paul says, But I say this as a concession, not a commandment. What does this mean? Well, other translations render verse 6 as, I speak this by permission, some read, or I give this as advice, not as commandment. And so it's important to see that here because what this really means is that Paul is speaking to a degree based on his own wisdom, his own experience, his own opinion. Meaning that his words then are not drawn necessarily from Old Testament Scripture as Paul says things like in verse 7, for I wish that all men were even as myself, meaning single. Paul is not saying here, this is the way that it should be. Okay? He's saying here, this is my opinion. This is my experience. And so, Paul, even throughout the rest of this chapter, even the rest of this book, to a degree, is responding, as we know, to specific questions. So it's important to understand, then, that he's not giving a complete theology on marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 doesn't, isn't like the chapter that says, okay, you want to understand marriage? Here, just read this chapter. Remember, he's responding to a question. The Corinthian church has said, hey, look, some people are, are just like way off the rails with sexual relationships. And then other people are like, no, bad, terrible. And, and he's saying, okay, let's, let's bring this back in a little bit. So we've got to take the whole counsel of God if we really want to understand what it says about marriage, about biblical marriage. So then Paul does say in verse 7, for I wish, again expressing, this is my opinion, this is my experience, that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So Paul is not saying that the best and most biblical scenario is singleness. He's not saying this is the absolute way. And we know this because we know from the creation account in Genesis 2, verse 18, that God himself said, it is not good that man should be alone. And there are plenty of men here today that would say, amen. Right? Amen. It is not good that man should be alone. However, Paul is single at this point, and apparently it's working great for him. Paul's like, this is, this is good. And it's working great for him as he serves the Lord. So he's saying, I wish everyone was like this because we would all be about just serving the Lord. Paul has an awareness at this point in his life that in his singleness, he is just very much focused on giving everything that he has 
all that he is to the Lord. And he's thinking, this is such a wonderful thing. Nevertheless, he's recognizing, I know this wouldn't necessarily work out for everybody. Quick side note here, Paul was probably married at one point. Most people agree on this. There's a good bit of consensus around this. We have to, this comes through sort of a reasonable deduction. We have to, we have to gather this based off of we, what we know about Scripture and Jewish culture. But if Paul were, in fact, a member of the Sanhedrin, which it seems like he probably was, and as Paul, who claims really to have kept the law better than anybody else, we know that the Jewish law and the Jewish culture surrounding adult males, him being married would have been essential. It would have been a key part of being part of the Sanhedrin, and it was just a necessary thing in Jewish culture that a grown male would be married. And so it would seem to be the case that he was. Why is he single now? Certainly his wife could have died. Other people believe that maybe she left him when he became a Christian and his life was so radically changed. Whatever the case may be, he is speaking from experience most likely in terms of saying, I lived that life, now I'm living this life, and this is working very well for me. And so he says then, verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But, verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so here again, he's recognizing not everyone is gifted or called to singleness. And he would much rather, even though there becomes somewhat of a divided interest to a degree, and those who are in a relationship understand this, he's saying that was, that's much better than falling victim time and time again, or, or going into, I should say, sexual sin as a, as a result of fulfilling desire. So it's single-mindedness here that Paul's really after. This is why he's saying it's a good thing. For him, he doesn't have the, the worry that can come along with marriage and family and the need to, of course, provide and care for and minister to. Not that those things are bad necessarily, but he has the freedom to really give himself solely to ministry. And so this is what he's speaking about. And it's, not a, it's certainly not off base. Jesus addresses this. Jesus in Matthew 19 in verses 11 and 12, this is the New Living Translation, says, not everyone can accept this statement. Suffice it to say that statement is to a degree like uh, what Paul is addressing here. Really, it was the disciples listening to Jesus talk about marriage and the disciples then say, whoa, it must be better than not to get married. And Jesus responds saying, well, not everyone can accept that. Jesus said, only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. So Paul has said, if you can remain unmarried, and as such not be distracted by your selfless service to your spouse, and only to that of Jesus, then that's a wonderful thing. But otherwise, get married. Don't let your fleshly desires get you into a situation like that of which we read about in chapter 6, where you're regularly giving parts of yourself away little by little, dehumanizing yourself. Get married and serve one another toward the end that you 
live life pleasing to the Lord. So again, Paul's going to bring this back around to this understanding that marriage ultimately then should serve to fuel both of you in your walk with the Lord. Now next week, we're going to get in a little bit further into, okay, what if you are single? What should you be doing? How should you approach that? Should you be giving a great deal of effort towards getting unsingle and married? How should you handle that? And Paul gives us wisdom into that. But we'll deal with that more next week. And so this is the first aspect of marriage. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's about selfless service. We've seen already here then in the first nine verses that Paul has said, look, your life essentially is not your own. In previous chapters, Paul has reminded us, you were bought at a price. Jesus now owns you. But as we look at the marriage relationship and how that's a picture of Christ in the church, we must understand then that to husbands and wives, it's a similar pattern. Your life is not your own. When you entered into that relationship, when you put that ring on, when you made those vows, you were in effect saying, I'm giving my life to you and vice versa. You're entrusting one another, each other, into each other's care. You're beginning to say, I'm going to put away my desires in exchange for yours. And by the way, when that's done well, it's a beautiful thing. And it's an encouraging thing. It's when it's one-sided, right, that it becomes a difficult thing. But Paul deals with that here too as we get into the idea of radical commitment. Paul says in verse 10 and 11, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, that a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now we are not this morning going to delve in entirely to an understanding of divorce. This will come a little bit more in next week's message as well. And suffice it to say, it has become quite complicated Today, even within the church, there are numerous opinions on how to interpret passages related to divorce. I'm not going to go into all of that here this morning because I want us first to look at it from this perspective. According to verses 10 and 11, Paul is clear. Don't leave. Don't get divorced. Yet being realistic in verse 11, Paul recognizes sometimes people will leave. Sometimes they'll go. And he says then to that, remain as you are, or return. What Paul's mindset here is, remain in singleness or pursue reconciliation. The mandate here, by the way, is not one-sided. He's not just, yes, he has a few more words for the, the ladies, seemingly, and less the men, but it's the same for both husband and wife. He's saying, don't do this. Look, what we must understand is that the Bible does take a pretty strict view on divorce. And this can be a difficult thing. No doubt there's many of you affected and impacted by this in one way, shape, or form. And so yes, the Bible does take a very strict view on divorce, but oftentimes what becomes our problem is that we focus in on that. Look how strict the Bible is on divorce. And we don't ask, well, why is that? Well, Because the Bible takes a very high view of marriage. And that needs to be the way that we look at it. Less about the divorce and more about, God says marriage is special. It's a very special marriage. It's a significant uh, relationship. It's a significant relationship. And that has become in large part the problem today. Divorce has become as available as a car wash or a mattress store on Two Notch. They're everywhere. You've got plenty of options. 
But it's not because everyone loves divorce. It's because we've devalued marriage. And so that's where we should begin to focus our attention is less on, well, what does it say about divorce here? What does it say about divorce here? But what does the Bible have to say about the marriage relationship and what that is to be and how God holds that up and, and how, do we, how do we walk in, in that and have understanding of that? We're called to take the relationship seriously. And the question might come, well, what if you're married then to an unbeliever? I le- I, you might be saying, well, I love Jesus now and he doesn't or she doesn't. What, what do we do in that situation? Paul deals with this, right? Verse 12, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman, verse 13, who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So here's this idea then, where Paul is beginning to speak to radical commitment. He's saying even when the situation is not ideal, commit to it. The world says, I'm to be happy. That marriage and relationships should make me happy. And being married to an unbeliever maybe means that the marriage is less than what you want it to be. And, and this is true, right? This is often true. And for that, I am sorry. I mean, to those who are in a situation where they're struggling with this, it's not that we turn a blind eye to it. It's not that we turn a deaf ear to it or just say, oh, you know, don't worry about it. No, that's hard. And we do. I, as a pastor, I want marriages to thrive. I do. I have a heart for marriages. It's one of the things that, that has long been with me throughout life. And and I, and I want that. I want marriages to thrive, and I believe that they can. But this view that, that I need to be happy and this relationship needs to make me happy really speaks then of a view that is about self-service. That is that marriage really should be the means of my happiness. But if we're looking at it rightly, then we should understand that it is about selflessness. And the relationship should be the means to our holiness not our happiness. Happiness is wonderful. It's a nice bonus. But really, it's about our holiness. It's about our understanding of what God desires of us. And look at this, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And so you see, for the unequally yoked, there is a blessing to the unbeliever by being with and under the blessing and protection of the believer. Now, mind you, this would be in a a situation where the two were married as unbelievers and one gets saved, right? We would certainly not, uh, uh, I shouldn't even say we would not encourage, we would discourage, nor would I perform a wedding between a believer and an unbeliever. We wouldn't, we wouldn't sign off on creating that union. And so this is speaking of uh, something changed, okay, in, in, that, in the time of that relationship. But what it's saying here is, look, the spouse, the unsaved spouse is blessed now by being in this relationship. It doesn't mean that they're saved. It doesn't mean that they become saved because their spouse gets saved. But it means that they're blessed by being around the one who's saved. And then furthermore here, what, what Paul wants us to understand is that you never know. 
then how God might use you to be the, the means or to be a, 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 or rather to contribute to the eventual salvation of your spouse. 1 Peter 3.1, Peter says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Countless testimonies are told of men who came to saving faith and, and testified to just how their wife played such a role in winning them to Christ. So an encouragement to the spouse that may be here who's married to someone who is unsaved. Recognize first that this person in your life is not your savior, okay? So, so often in our marriage relationships, we can look to the spouse and we can expect more from them than what we should be really getting from them. We need to oftentimes remind ourselves, I've got to look to Jesus here, not my spouse, for my fulfillment, my happiness, my safety, right? And so they are not to be the source of your happiness. Jesus is. And as you serve Jesus and then your spouse, do so with expectation that God will use this to minister to them. And in your selfless service, the blessing of happiness will often materialize. And guys, I know a lot of this stuff, when we think about it, it's like, boy, that, you know, that's, yeah, okay, I get it. That's sort of the lofty ideal here, but it's another thing in the day-to-day when the rubber hits the road, and indeed it is, these things are not easy, right? That doesn't necessarily call us to the things that are easy, but it doesn't mean that it's not the truth of His Word. And so many wonderful things can be experienced when we walk in obedience to His Word. But then Paul does say here in verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. And so Paul says there should be peace. And Paul isn't denying, he's not saying, man, this should just be this awful, contentious, terrible, difficult situation that you're just remaining in. No, he's saying peace is the desire here. And so certainly if, if an unbelieving spouse leaves and you're like, oh my goodness, life is so much more peaceful now. Paul's saying, look, it's okay to remain as you are. And here's the other thing. Certainly if a woman or a man too, but often a woman is in an abusive relationship, emotional, verbal, physical, look, we're not going to encourage her to stay and endure that, okay? We've got to understand those things. And so again, I know that there's many stories here and testimonies, and maybe there's even some sitting here today, and you know, man, divorce is a part of my past. And maybe you find yourself struggling a little bit with, was there biblical grounds for that? And Look, that's something that we can have a conversation about offline to pray with you about. Please, please understand, and we don't get to use God's grace as cheap grace, as a means to just do what we want, but please understand that we do serve a God who is a God of reconciliation and restoration, just like we talked about last week, right? So if some of these things are a part of your past and you find yourself wrestling with it, that's something to take to the Lord. That's something to bring into the light as far as allowing other believers to come alongside you and to encourage you and to speak truth into your life and to see what the Lord maybe wants to do with that. So please don't hear condemnation from the word here this morning. And again, Paul reinforces here. He says, um, well, really, so <clears throat> Paul, again, is not making allowances then for divorce. Right as he walks through this process, 
He's not making allowances for divorce and separation the way that our culture does today. People today are, are, are certainly far too flippant with marriage instead of seeing it as the special relationship that it's intended to be. But Paul does understand, look, sometimes there's just things that happen and he's trying to give wisdom into how do you handle this as these things unfold. Moreover, he wants to encourage, again, he wants to kind of bring a sense of optimism to the difficult situation in verse 16 and say, for how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? And so clearly he's challenging them to say, look, if the circumstances are appropriate, stick with it. Stick with it and trust God to work and to move in this relationship as you begin, if only you, begin to live out how God has designed it. Trust his word. Trust what he said. Trust how he's designed this relationship. Trust him to move in this situation. Now, as we begin to close here this morning, I think it's important then um, that we look at another passage of Scripture to kind of bring some good perspective to this I'd ask you to turn this morning to Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 32. And let's read this together. Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. This is also Paul. Because a lot of people, especially at this part of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 7, are kind of like, man, what's Paul think about marriage? It seems like he's really describing sort of this difficult thing, like we're supposed to see it as a wonderful marriage, but he's talking about all these different scenarios. And, and he said sort of, uh, you know, may, if, if you're not in marriage, and he's going to continue this in the latter part of, of um, 1 Corinthians 7, he's saying, look, if you're single, don't seek a wife or a husband. And so some people are like, man, I think Paul's really dogging on marriage. But look what he writes to the church in Ephesus. Specifically, again, Ephesians 5, verse 25 and following, he says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. So once again, just a side note here, for anybody who wants to like highlight the passages in Scripture that are all about the, what the wife needs to do, you can always, ladies, point them right back to Ephesians 5, 25-32. And what the men should see, the husband should see, is, look, you're called to die. You're called to die for your wife. But what Paul then says here, bigger picture, is he says, look, this relationship, it's a mystery. And you might be inclined to go, well, amen to that too, right? Sometimes marriage feels like a mystery. Lord, help us to figure it out. But what Paul's pointing us to is he says, look, it's about me. And like everything else in life that the Lord calls us to, variety of relationships and experiences and things that he's doing in his life in our lives he's saying look to me so often we're tied to the horizontal we look at so many things in our life on this level and when we do so we sort of we, we forget that this is not our home 
God calls us to look up. He, he calls us to look towards what he, who he is and, and what he's doing. And of this very relationship, he says, this is something, there's more here. He says, marriage is intended to be more than just a relationship. To be clear, marriage, when lived out by God's design, is an awesome thing. And there is great happiness experienced in marriage. There's fulfillment that comes in marriage. But it's about something bigger. Marriage is to be a picture of Christ and His church. So then our marriages should be about replicating this relationship and leading each other to Jesus, pointing each other to Jesus, pointing your children, if applicable, to Jesus, pointing your community, the rest of your family, your unsaved family members, your marriage, that relationship has the opportunity if you just sort of do it the way that God has designed it, which, by the way, doesn't mean it's always perfect. In fact, when it's not perfect, it's oftentimes even a a greater opportunity to demonstrate love and grace and forgiveness in ways that other people don't understand and to say, this is what it's about. This is what Jesus has done for us. And so we're seeking to live this out in our own relationship. And so then, with this, with this greater ideal or greater ethic around marriage, we must then not expect marriage to be something it was never intended to be. Marriage is not to be the ultimate source of your happiness. Your spouse is not your savior. Jesus is to be your source of happiness. Jesus is your savior. And just as Jesus then willingly sacrificed himself for an adulterous people, an ultimate demonstration of love, so are we called to image this relationship through our gracious demonstration of love towards our spouses. Gary Thomas, in his book, The Sacred Marriage, writes, Marriage calls us to an entirely new and selfless life. Any situation that calls me to confront my selfishness has enormous spiritual value. And I slowly begin to understand that the real purpose of marriage may not be happiness as much as it is holiness. If we view the marriage relationship as an opportunity to excel in love, it doesn't matter how difficult the person is whom we are called to love. It doesn't matter even whether that love is ever returned. We can still excel at love. We can still say, like it or not, I'm going to love you like nobody ever has. Marriage creates a situation in which our desire to be served, coddled, can be replaced with a more noble desire to serve others even to sacrifice for others. Each day, he says, we must die to our own desires and rise as a servant. Each day, we are called to identify with the suffering Christ on the cross and then be empowered by the resurrected Christ. We die to our expectations, our demands, and our fears. We rise to compromise, service, and courage. So look, marriage is an awesome thing. It's a blessing. It is good. It's designed by God. But it's a relationship intended to fuel the greater relationship. Your marriage should be, ideally, fueling your love for Jesus. Amen? Fueling your dependence on Jesus, your devotion to Jesus. When done well, that's what it accomplishes. Hopefully this is a mutual process. But even when it's not, God can use it to teach us much 
for what it means to love unconditionally, to give sacrificially, to even know more and more of what grace truly is. But we must remain committed to it. I'll close with this. Stephen Um writes, In the church's marriage to Christ, listen to this, in the church's marriage to Christ, it is not until death do us part. It is my death ensures that we will never be apart. This is the foundation for oneness in marriage that is divided. The indissoluble union that the church has with Christ is the foundation for the union between a husband and wife. If we understand that rightly, what he's saying here as far as radical commitment is he's saying, look, if your marriage is intended to be a picture of Christ, well, then that's why God does hate divorce so much. Because in that tearing apart, that potentially communicates is that maybe that's what can happen between me and the Lord. But if we're living this out saying, I want this to be such a picture for all people of God's unconditional love, and even when this is messy, man, we're going to stick it out. We're going to work through it. We're going to demonstrate love and grace so that people don't just look at our relationship and say, oh, you guys are great. But as we're pointing people to Christ, they say, okay, that's the kind of love, even greater than that, that he shows towards me. See, what a privilege it is then to be married if that's the part we get to play in pointing people to Jesus. Friends, we get to live this out. In marriage, Christians can paint a living picture of Christ's love for his church as we seek to serve selflessly and commit radically to an imperfect person who's loved by a perfect God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you, Lord, for these, these things that you do, Lord, that are so beyond us in our understanding. Where even, even Paul says this is a mystery. And so we admit, Lord, we don't understand it all. Moreover, Lord, we recognize that it is hard, Lord. Some of these things you call us to, they're difficult. But Lord, we thank you for your word and the spirit that gives us insight into how these, these earthly horizontal relationships connect us to the vertical. They, they, they connect us to you, Lord. And how you show us in your word that these things that you call us to have supernatural connections, eternal impact. And how, Lord, you want to do this work that you've given us a design, Lord. You've given us a roadmap for how to walk these processes, for how to engage in these relationships. And if we do, Lord, you'll bless it and you'll use it, Lord, for your glory. I pray, Lord, it would not be lost on us then here this morning, the privilege and the opportunity we have, Lord, to just to, to, to be used, Lord, by you for your glory, for eternal impact. And so, Lord, I pray also this morning that you would strengthen marriages here, Lord. You would encourage hurting hearts. That, Lord, you would call us beyond the things of this world and connect us, Lord, with your ideal, with your design, and give us a strength, Lord, to walk in it, we pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the relationship we know in you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you are subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. 
For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.